Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. You don't hear this kind of story every night on the news here on News Channel 7. An international manhunt spanning three decades, and it is now the subject of a true crime story. It really is a crime story you'd expect to see in the movies or read about in a James Patterson book. The owner of a well-known bank rumored to have ties to the CIA and organized crime vanishes off the face of the earth. Tonight, it's where he turned up that has people around the world shaking their heads. Welcome to Merchants of Menace. The story of the Nugenhan Bank scandal unfolds like a creation of a Hollywood screenwriter. But this tale isn't fiction. The main players in the story are American war hero Michael Hand and Australian lawyer Frank Nugent. Michael could have been a television evangelist. He was suave and debonair. Frank was kind of like a 600-pound gorilla. You know, he sleeps where he wants to sleep. In 1973, Nugent and Hand established a merchant bank in Sydney, Australia. Within four years, Nugent Hand had expanded into a global and seemingly successful financial enterprise. There's a new force in the financial world. An Australian firm of investment bankers. Nugent Hand International. With 13 offices in 11 countries and a turnover of $1 billion a year, Nugent Hand offers safe secure deposits with unparalleled returns. Doing business 24 hours a day. Nugent Hand International. But in 1980, it all came tumbling down when Frank Nugent was found dead in mysterious circumstances and Michael Hand disappeared without a trace. The bank collapsed in a blaze of newspaper headlines, connecting the bankers to gun running and money laundering for drug syndicates and the CIA. A dozen investigations, including an FBI probe and a powerful Royal Commission, controversially failed to get to the bottom of the bank's illegal operations. The Royal Commission was so dismissive of an American connection, many people simply felt that it was a cover-up because it was, in effect, so superficial and so dismissive. In 2011, I began what became a four-year reinvestigation into the Nugent saga. Along the way, I was assisted by people involved in the original investigations. It is undoubted that Nugent Bank was involved in drug trafficking. These were not your average bankers in what is not an average bank. I also tracked down a bank insider 
who provided new and startling insights into Nugenhan's dealings with criminals and intelligence agencies. At one point, Nugenhan became the conduit bank for the CIA. Throughout, I'll present evidence missed by the original investigations and go on the hunt for Michael Hand, one of the world's most elusive corporate fugitives. My view was that uh, Michael Hand disappeared because he knew how to disappear. From 1980 to now, not a hide nor hair of Michael Hand has been seen around the world. He's not a ghost, surely he isn't. Someone must know where he went. But first, let's go back to the mystery-riddled event that triggered the collapse of the Nugenhand financial empire. It was just after 4am on Sunday the 27th of January, 1980. Two police officers from Lithgow were patrolling the Great Western Highway near the small township of South Bowenfells, 140 kilometres west of Sydney. They turned off and drove along a winding disused section of the highway, which sat on an escarpment overlooking a sprinkling of farmhouses. A few hundred metres along, they came upon a Mercedes-Benz parked beneath a stand of tall eucalypt trees. The vehicle's parking lights were on, so they pulled up and got out to investigate. Detective Sergeant Bill McDonnell picks up the story. In 1980, I was the uh, officer in charge of detectives at Orange. I received a telephone call at my home that there had been a shooting that a disused part of the old Great Western Highway. The police made a closer examination and found Frank Nugan sitting in the car with uh, his uh, hand on a rifle and a massive sign of violence there and obviously uh, he had been shot in the head. The patrolman assumed that Frank Nugan had taken his own life, but others were not so sure. It just wasn't a simple suicide, not within a million miles of an ordinary suicide. That it was probably an execution was my immediate assumption. This was a very strange event for the senior executive of an international bank. There was usually a big story behind that sort of behaviour. Frank Nugan was 37 years old. At the time of his death, his American-born wife and their two young children were in Tennessee visiting her family. That afternoon, Frank's brother, Ken, travelled from Sydney to Lithgow to identify the body. Ken Nugan was very upset when he came to view the body. Uh, I could well understand, the brothers, I know they were pretty close. But uh, I said, well, you have to go through the procedure. And he said, well, I can tell you something uh, that only one or two of us in the world that know is that Frank has a webbed left foot. I went in and had a look and sure enough, his middle toes or left foot were uh, webbed. So I said to Ken Yugen, that's him, but that doesn't negate us having to go through the uh, sorry procedure of you having to identify the body, which he did. He went in and uh, said, yes, that is my brother, Frank Nugan. Looking down on his brother's body, Ken Nugan quipped, Frank used to boast about being the richest man in Sydney, 
Look at him now. At first glance, there were a number of unusual aspects surrounding the death of the merchant banker. The location where he allegedly took his own life was a two-hour drive from his waterfront home on Sydney Harbour. What took him to this location? And how did the police happen upon his car? In reflection, it's uh, an odd place for the uh, local PD to be patrolling, by the way, at uh, that hour of the day. I did have concerns about it. I've had concerns from day one of this matter. Police Sergeant Cole Wedderburn was later brought in to assist the coroner. If someone told me that they saw the police officers down there at 4am in the morning at this area, uh, I would have immediately concluded that someone had phoned the police station and said they just heard a shot and they went out to investigate. I would think you'd hear it for a mile away. I spoke to them myself and said, did anyone ring the police station and notify you? you know, well, you know, we're just patrolling. But it was a, a masterful find at four in the morning. There were other anomalies. There were no fingerprints on the rifle and the medical officer who inspected Nugent's body couldn't determine the time of death. The case took a sinister turn when the police briefed the New South Wales Attorney-General, Frank Walker. Shortly after Frank Nugent's death, I received briefings about his body and what was found on it. I was told that there was a list in a ledger of names that 26 of those were drug dealers. I was told that there was uh, cards from William Colby of the CIA and also of a congressman. Frank Walker called on the Corporate Affairs Commission to pay a visit to Nugent Hand. Our first job was to go down to Nugent Hand and marshal all records. Forensic accountant Rick Porter and lawyer Jeff Nicholson were handed the assignment. As we walked into those premises, they were in the process of actually shredding information. It ultimately came out that they'd burnt a shredding machine out, destroying records. If I had any doubts that something was seriously wrong, those doubts evaporated on day one. As well as shredding documents, staff moved boxes of the bank's records to secure locations across the city including a coal storage facility. A refrigerated room full of animal carcasses was the last place anyone would think of looking for the entrails of a rapidly disappearing merchant bank. There was virtually nothing left in the bank. And at that stage, I ordered an immediate investigation into the Nugent Hand Bank. The attention of investigators turned to Nugent Hand's business partner, Michael Hand. The New York-born 38-year-old was in London at the time of Nugent's death. Two days later, he flew into Sydney and ordered the destruction of the bank's records. When investigators interviewed Hand, he claimed to have had little dealings with Nugent since moving three years earlier to Southeast Asia to run the bank's international operations. Michael Hand gave some very unhelpful evidence at the start, and the intention of the investigation was to call him back having gained facts that were totally inconsistent with his previous evidence and to cross-examine him about those. Uh, at that stage, he wasn't able to do so because he had disappeared. 
the Nukenhan Bank collapsed like a house of cards in April 1980, after which Michael Han vanished. Han's lawyer suggested to a newspaper that his client may have been abducted and murdered. The Australian authorities, however, believed he had fled the country. Michael Han gave this attitude out of being a, a tough and rough soldier and I don't think he would have been terribly worried about anyone in Australia hurting him. By now, a joint task force of federal and state police were looking into the bank's alleged links to drug traffickers. Meanwhile, corporate and police investigators were piecing together how Nugent and Han became partners. Frank Nugent was born in the rural town of Griffith in New South Wales. His school friends believed that his father was Spanish. In reality, both his parents were born in Germany and arrived in Australia as refugees from Palestine on the eve of the Second World War. By the 1960s, the Nugent family had built up the largest fruit packing and transport company in Australia. Frank studied law at Sydney University, but saw a little future in working for the large legal firms. He believed he wasn't accepted in the legal fraternity that was operating in, uh, out of Macquarie Street, and he had a bit of a chip on his shoulder. Although Frank wore very expensive suits and smoked expensive cigars and drank cognac, that he was still just a fruit merchant. He couldn't get away from his humble beginnings. The attack yesterday on the Hawaiian Islands has caused severe damage to American naval and military forces. Michael Hand was born in New York the day President Roosevelt declared war against Japan. Tragedy struck early when his mother fell from the family's Bronx apartment. If you met Michael and you didn't know that his father was a civil servant and his mother had killed herself, you would never know that this guy wasn't a graduate of Harvard or Yale. Michael could have been the CEO of a corporation in the United States. He could have been the Pope in Rome. Han studied forestry before joining the military in the early 1960s. He was soon selected for Special Forces training in the art of unconventional warfare at Fort Bragg in North Carolina. When you were selected for Special Forces training, you could pretty much look people in the eye and say, I'm one of the chosen few. We weren't Boy Scouts. You know, we, this wasn't a church camp. We were trained to go in and destroy things. In February 1965, Hand and his Special Forces buddy, Doug Sapper, found themselves in the thick of the Vietnam War. Shortly after Michael's team arrived at Dong Suai, they were involved in a major battle in Vietnam. One of the bloodiest battles of the Vietnam War still echoes in Dong Khai as relief troops continue to pour into town. Dong Xai, Vietnam. It is near midnight when the communist Viet Cong attack. Immediately, Private First Class Michael J. Hand of the 5th Special Forces Group shouts the alarm to others and starts for his defensive position. Seeing a mortally wounded American soldier lying under the open fire, he carries him to a better covered position. And then, under a heavy mortar barrage, he and a medic carry a wounded captain and a CB to cover. Unable to find a radio to call for help, he joins another soldier in a mortar position until driven out by hostile fire. 
They were trying to capture Michael because he was out of bullets. One of the guys grabbed him, and Michael stabbed him and ripped the knife up through his sternum. And the guy hit the ground, and Michael put his foot on the guy's leg and grabbed his head and literally lifted up and separated his head from his body. But yeah, he tore the guy's head completely off his body. And everybody knew that Michael Hand, when push came to shove, could be seriously dangerous. Specialist Hand, can you recall some of your thoughts and fears during this battle? We were uh, all waiting for dawn to come and doing a heck of a lot of praying during this period of time. And we were just praying for help and more ammunition during the battle. Thank you, Michael. We've been speaking with Specialist 4, Michael J. Han, winner of the Distinguished Service Cross for a valorous action in the face of the enemy. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. In 1967, Michael Hand arrived in Sydney, Australia, which had just become the host to American servicemen on R&R. Hand gravitated to King's Cross, the city's beating heart of crime and prostitution. The owner of the bourbon and beefsteak restaurant and bar, Bernie Houghton, took Michael Hand under his wing. Bernie was a wily connected Texan who'd run GI bars in Saigon during the Vietnam War. Bernie Houghton's one of the most mysterious characters, I guess, that you would meet in King's Cross in those days. He had a period of training in the military at the end of World War II. Interestingly, he then spent time in Southeast Asia for quite some years and then came to Australia in the mid-60s and set up as a restaurateur. What was quite interesting, he set up his business effectively in the months before approval was given for US military resources to come to Australia on R&R from the Vietnam War. And you could be forgiven for suspecting that he knew something in advance and was taking advantage of it. With Bernie's blessing, Michael Hand used the bourbon and beefsteak as his base to sell land in the north of the state to visiting GIs. 18 months later, his old Special Forces buddy, Doug Sapper, flew into Sydney. We went down to King's Cross. Well, of course, everybody talked about King's Cross. And we had heard about the bourbon and beefsteak, where all the GIs went and everything, so we went down there. The next thing I knew, I ran into Michael, and I think probably at a quiet moment, I said, how the hell did he get to Australia? I just assumed that he had returned to New York. I found out that he married... Helen, phenomenal woman, I mean, very strong personality, but he married her within just a little over a year, arriving in Australia. Didn't take him long to fall under the spell, I guess you'd say. But you could tell that Michael was in survival mode. 
and he wasn't going to be satisfied with selling condos or houses down in this development. He was looking for something that had a future. Investigators learned that it was at the Bourbon and Beefsteak where Mike Hand and Frank Nugent first met. Joint Task Force Senior Investigator Clive Small. Bernie Houghton was certainly central to that meeting, as was an American named Duke Countess, who was in Australia at the time, who was a long-time gambler. Nugan and Hand became visitors to Houghton's restaurant, and it was that sort of association or network that led to Nugan and Hand becoming partners. From that point on, they formed a number of companies, and after about four years, a Nugan Hand bank emerged. In 1973, Nugent & Han set up office in Macquarie Street, Sydney. It was a prestige address. The Sydney Opera House was a few hundred metres away. In reality, Nugent & Han didn't have the capital to become a registered bank, so they simply called themselves merchant bankers. It wasn't a bank as such. It didn't have a licence. So it basically operated as a money market type operator. The staff didn't have any experience in that area at all. Gradually, they built up a customer base by offering tax avoidance advice, investment opportunities and interest rates on deposits 2% higher than the competition. The first 18 months were chaotic, but they managed to set up a branch in Hong Kong and had plans to open another in Hawaii. But in early 1975, Nugent called his staff together and made a shock announcement. Michael Hand had resigned from the bank to go turkey farming. Corporate investigators would later uncover a stash of the bank's records and discover that Hand had moved to South Africa. They also found a batch of telexes that Hand had sent to Nugan, which suggested that he hadn't gone turkey farming at all. CAC investigator Rick Porter. We saw telexes coming back, which would suggest that he was looking at armament deals and trying to put deals together to, to move guns and ammunition to South Africa. In 1975, armament sales to the South African apartheid regime were prohibited. The shopping list was remarkable. Rifles, handguns, mortars, grenade launchers, machine guns and associated ammunition. Bank staffers George Shaw and Bill Hands were assigned to procuring the weapons, either from Australia or overseas. When we examined George Shaw, he suggested to us that he had participated in talking to a gun dealer, he said, who was in Favot Street in regard to moving guns, mainly hand pistols, to South Africa via Singapore. So we decided we'd take a trip down to Favot Street and we'd come across a gun dealer. These deals were supposedly done in 75 and this is late 1980 and we went up and saw this funny office and saw this Mr Loy and said we're here, we're investigators on Nugent Hand, we're here to talk to you about the gun dealing and with that this bloke ruffled his desk and he had papers on his desk from six years earlier that were Nugent Hand, were dealt with the Nugent Hand approach to guns. The end of the investigation was that he'd even got a, an export licence to send secondhand guns over but the quantities that he could provide were, weren't sufficient and the deal was never consummated. But he still had the papers on his desk six years later. The investigators were unable to verify if any of the deals went ahead. But there were clues as to whom they were intended. Frank Nugan sent newly appointed bank executive Bill Hands to meet with Michael Hand in Rhodesia. 
he found Hand obsessed with weapons procurement, including a plan to set up a helicopter squadron in Rhodesia. They then travelled into nearby Angola, which was in the midst of a civil war. One of Angola's three warring factions was backed by the Soviet Union and Cuba, creating fear in South Africa and Rhodesia that communism would sweep south in their direction and topple their apartheid regimes. The United States had no appetite to help South Africa or Rhodesia, but the CIA was sympathetic to their plight. Agency Director William Colby secretly dispatched 83 CIA operatives to Southern Africa. And that's where Michael Hand fits into the equation. Hand was a former CIA paramilitary officer. When he got out of the military and went to work for the Central Intelligence Agency, it was the next step. Michael was on a team assigned up to one of the remote camps in, in uh, Laos. In Laos, Hand had trained hill tribesmen in the dark arts of modern warfare in the hope that they would be able to stop a Viet Cong insurgency into their country. Everything operational in Laos was controlled by the CIA, and Michael was a product of that environment. A decade later, Hand was allegedly back working for the CIA in Southern Africa, supplying weapons and his military expertise. CIA officers went in as advisors and trainers. They were called intelligence gatherers. But in fact, uh, they were preparing our allies for combat. John Stockwell ran the CIA's Angola operations. The total was uh, about 1,500 tons of arms, 30,000 rifles and small rockets and mortars. Our funds and arms were going to two of the three Angola factions. The mission was so secret, neither the American public nor its elected representatives knew of it. In late 1975, when a US Senate committee learned of the operation, President Gerald Ford was forced to shut it down and sack CIA Chief William Colby. Three years later, Colby would become legal advisor to the Nugenhan Bank. Look, I do think the 1975 experience does tell us one thing, and that is that Hand himself was quite prepared to be involved in illegal activity and was quite prepared to use the bank to support or fund that activity. In March 1976, after 14 months in Southern Africa, Michael Hand returned to Sydney and the Nugenhan Bank. It was as if he had never left. While he was away, Frank Nugent had conjured up a unique system of financial wizardry that had propelled their firm across the legal Rubicon. The scheme came about thanks to two American expatriates with links to organised crime. Duke Countess was a former San Francisco restaurateur and associate of mafia hitman Jimmy the Weasel Fratiano. Harry Wainwright was a former West Coast Mafia lawyer who was on the run from a grand jury investigation and allegedly growing dope in northern New South Wales. Countess told Nugent that Wainwright needed to move a sizeable amount of cash from Sydney to Hong Kong under the radar. In 1970s Australia, all international money transfers had to be approved by the Reserve Bank and the Tax Department. But rather than lose a client and a healthy commission, 
Nugan came up with a novel way to move the money without having to move it at all. What they did was something quite ingenious in a sense at the time, but so simple you say, why didn't other people think of it? They never transferred money anywhere. Well, they offered a facility to be able to come into Macquarie Street and deposit um, $200,000 in cash. And then you would be able to go to the Hong Kong branch and take the money out. No questions asked. Against Reserve Bank regulations and highly illegal. I suppose you can use any euphemism you like about it. What they were doing was assisting the drug barons to transfer money from one country to another without the authorities, the, the law authorities, the police and other people knowing about it. Coming up in part two of Merchants of Menace. I said, you get on the phone and you call these rat shit bastards and you ask them what the fuck they did with that money. I had already planned on killing these two guys. I mean, it, this was not going to end well. Well, he told me and the others that were at the meeting that he'd been successful in arranging a contract with the CIA whereby the bank was to become uh, its paymaster, if, if you like. Having got the help of the merchant banker, the next stage, I hoped, was to be able to infiltrate the Nugent Hand Bank by getting one of their employees to become an informant. This podcast is derived from the book Merchants of Menace, the true story of the Nugent Hand Bank scandal. Available at www.merchantsofmenace.net. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. <laughs> 